Hey, this is Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo. The name of the show is Across the Pond. We're over here in the U.S. recording, and many of you are listening from the U.K., and uh, lots of you join in from other places. Thanks for tuning in to the show. Uh, we like talking about red-letter Christianity. Some of the old Bibles have the words of Jesus highlighted in red, and uh, we like those words. We like uh, reading a sermon on the mountain saying, what if Jesus really meant that we're to sell what we have and give it to the poor and love our enemies and not worry about tomorrow and all those wonderful things. And we, we love reading the Beatitudes, you know, those things where Jesus talks about um, the things God has blessed, the people God has blessed. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the merciful, the meek, uh, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. The, 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 these are the people we're to lean uh, towards as we, we walk on this world. Um, so, uh, Tony, it's good good to talk. We're we're talking deep today. Yeah, huh? we, we don't we, have a yeah. guest. We're yeah. Well, people have asked uh, you you a question that I, I thought was really deep. You say, share about that. You got a email yeah, or a uh, note, huh? When we say the red letters in the Bible, I have to say there aren't many red letter Bibles in the United Kingdom. This is an American phenomena. Uh, here in the United States, it's very common that you can pick up a Bible, and the words of Jesus are highlighted in red. Evidently, the Brits haven't gotten around to doing that. They're cheap. They just want to print the Bible with black letters. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, have well, a, we, we, we found out that this is really old, actually. I think it was Ignatius that we, yeah. we learned was one of the first red-letter Christians in the sense yeah. of like highlighting uh, the words of Jesus in red. So this is hundreds of years old. <laughs> but, but whether they're red or whether they're in black letters, we red-letter Christians say, go to the Bible. Let's look at the things that Jesus said in the Gospels. And let's do what he told us to do. You know, it actually says, uh, Jesus actually says, you are my disciples if you do whatsoever I command you. Mm. Uh, And that's a troubling passage. Uh, What if you are doing what Jesus commands, but uh, you don't believe the right things? Mm. That raises a good question. My son falls into that category right now. Mm He grew up as a believer. He has tried to live Calls out. Him, identifies now as a humanist. Yeah. yeah, he identifies now as a humanist. And he says, my model is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate human being. And I want to do what Jesus told us to do and to uh, be the kind of person who lives out the teachings of Jesus. Red-letter Christians do not deny belief. Jesus says, and whosoever believeth in me, shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's what Jesus said. Mm. So if you're going to read the red letters of the Bible, if you're going to take the things that Jesus says seriously, you're going to believe in him. You're going to believe that he is the incarnation of the eternal Christ, the Christ that created the universe. 2,000 years ago, took on human form. He was born in Bethlehem's manger. He grew up as a human being. And it took the apostles a long time to figure out that this human being was more than just a human being. Peter, at a place in, uh, in Palestine called Caesarea Philippi, he looks at Jesus and he says, Hey, I've got you figured out, Jesus. I know who you are. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the one who created the universe. In the beginning was Christ. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. 
Christ was the creator of the universe, but he became a human being 2,000 years ago, and we gave him a name, and we gave him the name Jesus. But when we look at Jesus, we are seeing the Christ, the eternal Christ, the second member uh, of the Trinity. And, uh, and so uh, we're really saying, uh, are you willing to believe in him, to believe that he is the incarnation of the living God, or are you only going to do the things that he says? Jesus says, you're my disciples if you do whatsoever I command you. Many believers are not disciples. Hmm. Many believers are not disciples. Let me say that again, because Jesus said, you are a, one of my disciples if you do whatsoever I command you. You were talking about uh, the Beatitudes. You can worship Jesus without following Jesus. Uh, yeah. You know, I think that uh, the church has been really good at, at uh, teaching us what to believe, but not always as good at teaching us how to love and how to live out that faith, right? And Jesus said, listen to what Jesus said, follow me, mm. follow me. Whoa. Uh, Albert Schweitzer, the great missionary to Africa, uh, talks about the fact in the end of his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, we meet him as though he is a stranger by the sea, as some men did many years ago by the Sea of Galilee. And he bids us simply, follow me, follow me. I love when he says uh, to, the, to, uh, to Peter and, uh, and to his brothers, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You've been fishing for fish. Follow me. We're going to fish for the souls of men and women. And so he does down through the corridors of time. Follow me. Follow me. And you mentioned the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. Jesus said, the blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Yeah. How can you believe in capital punishment and be a follower of Jesus? Yeah. Jesus well, says to be merciful. Wendell Berry, uh, who's a wonderful farmer and theologian, he, he said, our money in the United States might say in God we trust, but our economy still looks like the seven deadly sins. <laughs> so, you know, I think we, well, you, but it. you look at the Beatitudes and they are the antithesis of the aspirations of much of the popular culture and the power, uh, the powers that be, you know, I mean, you look at our administration and we're not blessing the meek and the merciful and the pure in heart and the peacemakers. <laughs> and know? Jesus said, uh, blessed are the poor in the book of Luke. It's not poor in spirit. In yeah. Matthew, when you read the Beatitudes, it says, blessed are the pure in, pure in spirit. Blessed are those right, who have right. spiritually exhausted themselves loving people. Blessed are they, for they shall be called the children of God. In Luke, it's economics. Blessed are the poor, period. And in case you don't get the message, it says to people like me, Woe unto you who are rich. Yeah. Woe unto you Hard who are rich. Hard to spiritualize that away. Yeah. Whoa, you can't spiritualize that away. Blessed are those who have become economically poor because they've given so much away to poor people. You know, I give away a lot to the poor, but I'm still rich. Mm. Uh, man, I keep giving it away. Uh, but uh, I have these uh, stocks and bonds 
that are providing me with my retirement income. And I got to ask myself, maybe I ought to sell all my stocks and bonds because Jesus says, sell whatsoever you have and give it to the poor. Tenth chapter of Mark, sell what you have, give it to the poor and take up the cross and follow me. He says that to a rich young man 2,000 years ago, but I think he's saying that to a rich old man in hmm. Tony Campolo. <laughs> and, I'm, and, and that young man goes away sad at that saying because the Scripture says he had great possession. But I have preached that passage and says, you know, he says to the rich young ruler, sell what you have and give, to the poor, give it the money to the poor. But the young man goes away sad at that saying uh, because he had great possessions. Mm. And in the sermon that I preach, I say, you know, the irony is that what the young man possessed really possessed him. Yeah, He wanted to be a disciple of Jesus, but he couldn't do it because his wealth stood in the way. Mm. What do you do with all of that? Mother Teresa said sometimes the, the, the more we have, the less we are. You know, that we begin to be defined by our possessions. The more we have, the more we have to ma- maintain. Our bonds become our bondage. Come on. <laughs> and what we, and what we, what we think we own yeah, owns really us. owns us yeah. and really controls us. Uh, and, and when you go to the Sermon on the Mount, the fifth, sixth, and seventh chapters of, uh, of uh, Matthew, read it. Fifth, sixth, seventh chapters of Matthew constitute what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Peacemakers. When Jesus calls us to love our enemies, as he does on the Sermon on the Mount, you so brilliantly say, when Jesus says to love our enemies, he probably means we shouldn't kill them. Where did you get that? I don't know. Yeah, I I mean, just one of those things that... uh, you, it seems seems obvious, but yet, like we keep justifying so much violence uh, in 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 the name of Christianity. So it's uh, it can't can't be uh, too clear about uh, you know. I th- I think as I think of all of these things that Jesus does, sometimes it does seem like pretty um, unattainable, though. You know, like yeah. like how who do we know that really has sold everything and given it away? And um, you know, I I think of uh, let me interrupt. Yeah, you're right. And Jesus himself says, what I've taught you is impossible. But with my help, all things are possible. Yeah. You know, whoa. I think that like what he says right after that, too, the disciples start to realize this this kind of abundance. One of the things that they said is, um, we have no house, but we have homes everywhere we go. And so they realize that like even as we're releasing our possessions— we are entering into an economy of abundance because we're holding things together. And I, you know, I think of that just like you, you hear like many hands make for light work, you know, like, like the burdens get lighter as we carry them together. I think the the gifts of God are better shared. And we find that we have a lot when we, when we share, I mean, that's, that's how we've lived for 20 years in community, trying to share money together and realizing like, we don't all need a car. We've got one that we share with 10 people or whatever, you know, like those were, but it's, it's freeing to not have to maintain so much stuff. So I think like in the end, Jesus is really teaching us how to, how to be free, like the lilies and the sparrows that he talks about. And, uh, and there's a joy in that, you know, I, I think of, uh, Gandhi who, 
in in a lot of ways took these words more seriously than than most Christians yeah. today. And uh, he always rode third class on the train. And they someone asked him, "Why do you ride third class on the trains?" And he said, "Because there's no fourth class." <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like his entire logic had been yeah. reoriented. And and I think that's what Jesus is kind of doing to us is is allowing us to uh, to find a new freedom from the stuff and from our own violence. Because we think, you know, I'm, I, I want to be free to do whatever I want, but we end up that we're, we're slaves to our, our anger, our lust, or our materialism, that all those things begin to control us, and we think we control them. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi has sometimes been referred to as the last Christian, hmm. the last man to really say, I'm going to live out the red letters of the Bible, the words of Jesus, which in many Bibles are highlighted in red. He was the last guy to really do it and do it completely. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, when, when I look at, uh, at, the, uh, at Francis and St. Francis, who is, I think, the most popular saint in today's world, mm-hmm. I, more books have been written about St. Francis than about any other person except for Jesus. Mm. Uh, man, uh, what a, an interesting model he lives out. Uh, but uh, uh, he says uh, Jesus s- meant what he said and said what he meant, and he says that carefully. Um, and uh, uh, w- when I look at St. Francis, I see somebody who uh, lives out this message. He lived in the time of the Crusades, mm-hmm. and the Crusades have ruined uh, relations between Catholics and Muslims. Whenever the Muslims begin feeling good about Christians, as some rabble-rouser says, hey, don't forget the Crusades, don't forget the Crusades, in which people, in the name of Jesus, I can't believe they did it in the name of Jesus, marched into the Muslim world and slew Muslims by the hundreds of thousands, killing Muslim children, Muslim women, Muslim men everywhere they went. Oh, and, and to do this in the name of Jesus, who, if you took him seriously, would never kill anyone. Mm. Uh, when Jesus said, love your enemies, basically, if you love your enemies, they're not your enemies anymore. Uh, they become your brothers and your sisters. St. Francis of Assisi, during the Crusades, goes down to Egypt. The armies are aligned against each other. The Muslim army on one side, the Christian army on the other side. Mm. And on the eve of the great battles between them, Francis leaves the Christian armies, marches across the no man's land, goes into the Muslim army. The fact that they didn't kill him is amazing. There must have been something mystical about St. Francis. Marches to the tent where the sultan, who is the leader of the Muslim army, is residing, and goes in and talks about Jesus to the sultan. Mm. Till this day, Muslims have great respect for Jesus and have great respect for St. Francis of Assisi. Mm. As a matter of fact, they like to claim him as a true Muslim. Uh, Well, he may be a true Muslim, but more important, he's a true follower of Jesus. Well, Francis was also, uh, he he was given the... uh, like an ivory horn by the uh, the sultan, and he used that horn to call the Franciscans 
together in prayer, and you can still see it in Assisi. Yes. So they, they that that um, the the what a great I think witness for the world that we're living in, where we're seeing people um, killing Muslims and killing Christians, and you know all that same hatred like continuing to fire up. But uh, yeah, he's a he's a good one. Old St. Francis. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he embodies what Red Letter Christianity is all about, taking the words of Jesus seriously. Do a break thing and explain what this show is about. Yeah, so thanks for listening. This is Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo. We get to do this every week, and sometimes we have guests. Sometimes we just talk to each other and ponder some of the wonderful cloud of witnesses uh, through history like St. Francis. Um, but mostly we talk about Jesus. We, we talk about... As, as our friend uh, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove says, the Jesus way in the world today, what does it look like to live out the way of Jesus? And um, the, the early Christians, they were called the way because they, the, the Christianity wasn't just um, something you believe, but it was a way of living in the world. So if you want to know more about the movement, uh, you can go to redletterchristians.org and there's even a place to to make a commitment there to live in the way of Jesus, and we kind of flesh that out a little bit. But um, we uh, we've been talking about all kinds of stuff today. We've been talking about Saint Francis, been talking about uh, the sweet Lord Jesus, and um, what are we talking about now? <laughs> we're back. We're back to Jesus again. Uh, we're back uh, to uh, dealing with this question: Why do good people suffer? Uh, a Jewish friend of mine, mm-hmm. uh, a rabbi, wrote a book, uh, When uh, Good People Suffer. When Good People Suffer. Why? I, mean, I remember reading that. There was a book, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Yeah, I remember right. reading that when I was younger. Yeah. yeah. And uh, there are many ways of handling that issue. Uh, one is to simply say, we don't understand. And that's ultimately where we end up, no matter what we say. We don't understand. Uh, Mother Teresa, when asked about, about this question, uh, simply said, when I see the Lord, he's got a lot of explaining to do. Hmm. What a great line. Uh, basically, uh, we don't understand. Uh, someday we'll understand. Someday uh, we will have answers to these questions. But right now we, we don't have answers. Um, a man wrote to me, and, and talk- the people who do have all the answers were a little suspicious of. <laughs> uh, boy, yeah. Uh, basically, I was, uh, I was, um, I was uh, with a a young man at the University of Pennsylvania. I taught there for ten years, while uh, while Eastern is my primary school. Uh, East Penn University of Pennsylvania was where I was a faculty member for ten years, and uh, I was at lunch with a young man who asked me this question and I gave him all kinds of fancy answers. And when I finished, this other kid said, that's why I won't become a Christian because too often you Christians wrap everything up in a neat little package and act like that's it. Hmm. And truth is way beyond uh, what you can understand. And when Jesus was on trial, um, he's, Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? Hmm. He asks the question, what is truth? Do you know what Jesus answers? Hmm. He doesn't answer the question at all. Hmm. And the reason is, hey, Pilate, 
you're looking at truth. Truth is not an academic postulate. It's God wrapped up in human flesh. Truth is not a theology. It's God wrapped up in a man called Jesus. And Pilate is looking at Jesus. And Jesus is asked the question, what is truth? And you almost sense a cynical smile on Jesus' face saying, hey, Pilate, you're looking at it. You're looking at it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In answer to this question, I always refer people to the second chapter of Philippians, where it says about Jesus, he emptied himself of power. Wow. We call it the kenosis passage. He empties himself of power. Why would you have a God who empties himself in power. Here it comes. You can't express love and power at the same time. Hmm. That's the incredible reality. You cannot express love and power at the same time. And on the cross, God chooses to express his love for us by becoming powerless. Whenever we express power, we are not expressing love. We've got a God who is willing to, second chapter of Philippians, emptied himself of power in order to express his love for us. Look at the cross. It's the crucified God. Uh, Moltmann, the great theologian, uh, writes a book entitled, The Crucified God the God who gives up power in any relationship. If you want to have love, you have to make yourself vulnerable. Let me repeat that. In any relationship, if you want to express love, you've got to give up power. How many marriages fall apart because people are playing power games with him, with each other? Uh, You'll hear people say, I can't love in this relationship because he won't, give up power. Uh, He wants to be a control freak. Here is the incredible truth of the gospel. We've got a God who is not a control freak. He doesn't control everything because if you're going to be a control freak, you're not going to be a love freak. I would rather be a love freak than a control freak. And that's the way I deal with people who want to know why a loving God doesn't control everything. And my answer is, He doesn't control everything because he is a loving God. And you can't play control games and love games at the same time. That doesn't answer all the questions, but it's the best I can do when I'm dealing with this question. God is a God who is willing to give up power, is willing to become vulnerable. The vulnerable God, no other God ever defined is like our God in Jesus Christ. He gives up power to express his love. Well, that's the best I can do. What are you going to do? Yeah, that was good. I, you know, I, I, I think like... You're tongue-tied, I, I'm aren't just you? Think, yeah, I'm thinking of being born a, a baby, totally reliant, powerless, being born a refugee, suffering from power, dying on the cross. Everything that Jesus exemplified is is that vulnerability, even to the point where... We, we've 
talked about this before, but th- that when Jesus is on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you want to ponder something like the idea that God felt the absence of God on the cross and that, that powerlessness. So I, I think that part of the whole story of Jesus is God is with us. And the good news is that we're not alone in our suffering, um, that God is with those who suffer. And, you know, Jacques Ellul, who wrote uh, a lot of things, but he wrote uh, uh, Anarchy and Christianity. One of the things he talks about power is that the devil, uh, the tempter, is, offers Jesus power in the desert. And he says, all the power of this world has been given to me. And uh, he offers it to Jesus. And uh, Jesus doesn't argue with him. <laughs> no, he doesn't. <laughs> you know? But uh, uh, if Jesus is the embodiment of love, maybe the devil is the uh, embodiment of power. So, yeah, And power corrupts. And of course, why did Satan fall? If you read the book of Genesis, he falls because he wants to usurp the power of God and make it his own. Mm. And that's what brings about the destruction and the fall of Satan. Satan wants to grasp power. If you read that second chapter of Philippians, it starts with, he who thought it not not a a scandal to be equal with God, Mm. gives it up, Mm. gives it up. A God who chooses love rather than power. And if that seems like a contradiction, so let it be. So we're out of time, but choose love, not power this week. And we will see you next week at this time. Thanks for joining us.